Book Five, Chapters Thirty Eight to Fifty Eight of Commentaries on the Gallic War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Commentaries on the Gallic War by Julius Caesar. Translated by Thomas Rice Holmes. Book Five, Chapter Thirty Eight. Ambiorix was in high glee at his victory. Bidding his infantry follow him, he started at once with his cavalry for the country of the Aduatusi, who were conterminous with his kingdom, and pushed on throughout the night and the next day. Having related what had happened and roused the Aduatusi, he reached the country of the Nervii next day, and urged them not to lose the chance of establishing their independence for good and taking vengeance upon the Romans for the wrongs which they had suffered. Two generals, he told them, were killed, and a great part of the army had perished. There would be no difficulty in surprising the legion that was wintering under Cicero and destroying it. He promised to help in the attack, and the Nervii were readily persuaded by his words. 39. Accordingly they at once sent off messengers to the Seutrines, Grudaei, Levasi, Pleumoxai, and the Gidumni all of whom are under their sway, raising as large a force as they could, and swooped down unexpectedly on Cicero's camp before the news of Titanus's death reached him. In his case, too, the inevitable result was that some soldiers who had gone off into the forests to fetch wood for fortification were cut off by the sudden arrival of the cavalry and surrounded, and the Eburones, Nervii, and Aduatusi, accompanied by all their allies and dependents, attacked the legion in great force. Our men flew to arms and mounted the rampart. They could barely hold out that day, for the enemy staked all their hopes upon swift action, and they were confident that if they were victorious on this occasion, their victory would be lasting. 40. Cicero instantly sent dispatches to Caesar, offering large rewards to the messengers if they succeeded in delivering them, but all the roads were blocked, and the messengers were intercepted. In the night as many as one hundred and twenty towers were run up with incredible speed out of the timber which the men had collected for fortification, and the defects in the works were made good. Next day the enemy, who had been largely reinforced, renewed their attack on the camp, and filled up the trench. Our men resisted in the same way as the day before, and day after day the course of events was the same. Work went on without a break throughout the night neither the sick nor the wounded could get a chance of rest everything necessary for repelling the next day's attack was got ready in the night numerous stakes burnt and hardened at the ends and a large number of heavy pikes were prepared the towers were furnished with platforms and embattled breastworks of wattlework were fastened to them cicero himself though he was in very poor health would not allow himself to rest even in the night time so that the soldiers actually thronged round him and by their remonstrances constrained him to spare himself. Footnote. These pikes were hurled down from the towers. End footnote. 41. And now the commanders and chieftains of the Nervii, who had some claim to address Cicero and were on friendly terms with him, expressed the wish to have an interview. Their request being granted, they repeated the same tale that Ambiorix had told in dealing with Titurius. The whole of Gaul was in arms, the Germans had crossed the Rhine, 
Caesar's camp and the camps of the other officers were beleaguered. They also mentioned the death of Sabinus, and pointed to Ambiorix to gain credit for their story. The Romans, they said, were mistaken if they expected any help from men who themselves were desperate. However, they had no quarrel with Cicero and the Roman people, except that they objected to winter camps and did not want the custom to become established. They might leave their camp in safety, as far as they were concerned, and go wherever they liked, without fear. To these arguments Cicero simply replied that it was not the habit of the Roman people to accept terms from an armed enemy. If the Gauls would lay down their arms, they could send envoys to Caesar and avail themselves of his intercession. Caesar was just, and he hoped that they would obtain what they asked. 42. After this rebuff the Nervii invested the camp with a rampart ten feet high and a trench fifteen feet wide. They had learned the secret from observing our methods in former years, and they also got hints from prisoners whom they had taken, belonging to our army. But, as they had no supply of iron tools suitable for the purpose, they were obliged to cut the sods with their swords, and take up the earth with their hands and in their cloaks. From this one could form an estimate of their vast numbers for in less than three hours they completed a contravallation three miles in extent, and during the next few days they proceeded, after due preparation, to construct towers proportioned to the height of the Roman rampart, grappling hooks, and sappers' huts, which the prisoners had also taught them how to make. 43. On the seventh day of the siege a great gale sprang up, and the besiegers began to sling red-hot bullets made of plastic clay and to throw burning darts at the huts, which, in the Gallic fashion, were thatched. The huts quickly took fire, and, owing to the force of the wind, the flames spread all over the camp. The enemy cheered loudly, as if victory were already certain, and began to move forward their towers and huts and to escalade the rampart. But so great was the courage of the legionnaires, and such was their presence of mind, that, although they were everywhere scorched by the flames and harassed by a hail of missiles, and knew that all their baggage and everything that belonged to them was on fire, not only did none of them abandon his post on the rampart, but hardly a man even looked round, and in that hour all fought with the utmost dash and resolution. This was far the most trying day for our men, but nevertheless the result was that a very large number of the enemy were killed or wounded for they had crowded right under the rampart, and the rear ranks would not allow those in front to fall back. The fire abating a little, a tower was pushed up at one point and brought into contact with the rampart, when the centurions of the third cohort stepped back from the spot where they were standing, withdrew all their men, and began to challenge the enemy, by voice and gesture, to come on if they liked. But not one of them dared to advance. Then they were sent flying by showers of stones from every side, and the tower was set on fire. 44. In this legion there were two centurions, Titus Polo and Lucius Vorinus, who, by dint of extraordinary courage, were getting close to the first grade. They were forever disputing as to which was the better man, and every year they contended for promotion with the greatest acrimony. When the fighting at the entrenchment was at its hottest, Vorinus, cried Polo, why hesitate? What better chance can you want of proving your courage? This day shall settle our disputes. With these words he walked outside the entrenchment, and where the enemy's ranks were thickest dashed in. 
Voronist, of course, did not keep inside the rampart. Afraid of what everyone would think, he followed his rival. At a moderate distance, Pullo threw his javelin at the enemy and struck one of them as he was charging out of the throng. He fainted from the blow, and the enemy protected him with their shields, and all together hurled their missiles at his assailant and cut off his retreat. Pullo's shield was transfixed, and the dart stuck in his sword belt. The blow knocked his scabbard round, so that his hand was hampered as he tried to draw his sword, and in his helpless state the enemy thronged round him. His rival, Varinus, ran to his rescue, and helped him in his stress. In a moment the whole multitude left Pullo, believing that the dart had killed him, and turned upon Voronus. Sword in hand, Voronus fought at bay, killed one of his assailants, and forced the rest a little way back. But pressing on too eagerly, he ran headlong down a slope and fell. He was in his turn surrounded, but Pullo succored him, and the two men slew several of the enemy and got back, safe and sound and covered with glory, into the entrenchment. Thus fortune made them her puppets in rivalry and combat, rival helping rival and each saving the other, so that it was impossible to decide which was to be deemed the braver man. 45. Day by day the perils and the hardships of the siege increased, for this reason above all, that, many of the soldiers being enfeebled by wounds, few were now available for defense and day by day messengers were sent off with dispatches to Caesar in more and more rapid succession. Some of them were caught and tortured to death in sight of our soldiers. There was a solitary Nervian in the camp, named Vershiko, a man of good birth, who at the beginning of the siege had taken refuge with Cicero, and had done him loyal service. This man induced his slave, by the hope of freedom and by large rewards, to take a dispatch to Caesar. The slave carried the dispatch tied to a javelin, and, being a Gaul himself, went among the Gauls without exciting any suspicion, and made his way to Caesar, who learned from him the perils that encompassed Cicero and the legion. 46. Caesar received the dispatch about the eleventh hour. He at once sent a messenger into the country of the Pelovisi, to Marcus Crassus, the Quistor, whose camp was twenty-five miles off ordering his legion to march at midnight and join him speedily. Crassus left on receiving the message. Caesar sent another messenger to Gaius Fabius, bidding him march his legion into the country of the Atrebates, through which he knew that he would himself have to go, and wrote to Labienus, directing him, if he could do so consistently with the public interest, to move with his legion to the country of the Nervii. As the rest of the army was rather too far off, he did not think it wise to wait for it, but he got together about four hundred horsemen from the nearest camps. 47. About the third hour he learned from the scouting parties of Crassus's advanced guard that he was coming, and on the same day marched twenty miles. He left Crassus in command at Samarobrava, and assigned him a legion, as he was leaving behind the heavy baggage of the army, the hostages of the various tribes, the state papers, and the whole of the grain which he had brought there to last the winter. Fabius obeyed orders, and, without any serious delay, joined Caesar on the march with his legion. Labienus was aware of the fate of Sabinus and the massacre of his cohorts. The whole host of the Treveri was upon him, and he was afraid that, if he quitted his camp like a runaway, he would not be able to sustain the enemy's attack, 
especially as he knew that they were elated by their recent success. Accordingly he sent a dispatch to Caesar, telling him that it would be very dangerous for him to withdraw his legion from its quarters, describing what had happened in the country of the Eburones, and explaining that the whole host of the Treviri, horse and foot, had taken up a position three miles from his camp. 48. Caesar approved his decision, and although he had only two legions instead of three which he had expected, he saw that success was just possible with speed. By forced marches he advanced into the Nervian territory, where, learning from prisoners what was going on at Cicero's camp, and realizing the extreme peril of his position, he induced one of his Gallic horsemen by large rewards to carry a letter to him. He wrote it in Greek characters, for fear it might be intercepted and his plans become known to the enemy, and advised the man, if he could not get into the camp, to tie the letter to the thong of a javelin and throw it inside the entrenchment. He said that he had started with his legions and would soon arrive, and exhorted Cicero to be true to himself. The Gaul, dreading the risk of detection, threw his javelin, as he had been directed. It chanced to lodge in a tower and was not noticed by our men for two days. But on the third day a soldier observed it, took it down, and brought it to Cicero. After perusing the letter, he paraded the troops and read it aloud, to their intense delight and now the smoke of distant fires was seen, and all doubt about the coming of the legions was dispelled. 49. The Gauls, on hearing the news from their patrols, raised the siege, and marched with all their forces, about sixty thousand fighting men, to encounter Caesar. Cicero, availing himself of the opportunity, asked Versico, the same man whom we have mentioned above, to let him again employ his Gallic slave to carry a dispatch to Caesar, and, warning the man to move circumspectly and warily, wrote to say that the enemy had left and gone with their whole host to intercept him. About midnight the letter was delivered to Caesar, who informed his troops of its contents, and thus nerved them for the struggle. Next day he broke up his camp at daybreak, and, after advancing about four miles, described the enemy in force beyond a broad valley in a rivulet. It would have been very hazardous with such a slender force to fight on unfavorable ground. Besides, knowing that Cicero was released from blockade, he felt that he might without anxiety take his own time. Accordingly he remained where he was, and encamped on the most advantageous site he could find. The area was naturally small, as there was barely seven thousand men, and, moreover, no heavy baggage. But he reduced it as much as possible by narrowing the passages with the deliberate intention of making the enemy despise him. Meanwhile he sent out scouts in all directions, to find out the most convenient place for crossing the valley. 50. Cavalry skirmishes took place that day by the waterside, but the two armies maintained their respective positions, the Gauls waiting for reinforcements, which had not yet come up, while Caesar hoped that he might perhaps succeed, by feigning fear, in enticing the enemy over to his position, and thus be able to fight on the near side of the valley, in front of his camp, or, failing that, might reconnoitre the roads and so cross valley and rivulet with less risk. At daybreak the enemy's horse came close up to the camp and engaged ours. Caesar deliberately ordered his cavalry to give way and fall back into the camp, at the same time directing the troops to increase the height of the rampart on all sides and block up the gateways 
and in doing so to move about as hurriedly as possible and do their work with a pretense of fear. 51. Lured on by all these devices, the enemy crossed over and formed up on unfavorable ground, and as our men were actually withdrawn from the rampart, they ventured nearer, and threw missiles from all sides into the entrenchment, sending round criers with orders to announce that if anyone, Gaul or Roman, cared to come over and join them before the third hour, he might safely do so, but that after that time the permission would be withdrawn. The gates were blocked, but merely for show, with a single row of sods, and, fancying that they could not break through that way, some of them, in their contempt for our men, began to demolish the rampart with their bare hands, and others to fill up the ditches. Then, while the infantry rushed out from all the gates, Caesar let loose the cavalry and quickly sent the enemy flying, not a man standing to strike one blow. Many were slain, and all had to drop their arms. 52. Caesar was afraid to continue the pursuit, because there were woods and marshes in the way, and he could see no chance of inflicting the smallest loss upon the fugitives. But he reached Cicero on the same day without the loss of a man. He surveyed with admiration the towers which the enemy had erected, their sappers' huts, and earthworks. When the legion was paraded, he found that not one man in ten had got off unwounded and from all these things he appreciated the danger and the resolution with which the defense had been conducted. Warmly commending Cicero for his services, and also the legion, he addressed individually the centurions and tribunes, who, as he learned from Cicero's report, had shown distinguished gallantry. Having obtained correct information from prisoners about the fate of Sabinus and Cotta, he paraded the legion next day, described what had happened, and cheered and reassured the men. The culpable rashness of a general officer had entailed a disaster, but they must take it calmly, for the blessing of the immortal gods and their own valor had repaired the loss, and the enemy had as little cause for lasting exultation as they had for inordinate grief. 53. Meanwhile the news of Caesar's victory was brought by Romans to Labienus with incredible rapidity. He was sixty miles from Cicero's camp, and it was past the ninth hour when Caesar arrived there. Yet before midnight a shout arose at the gates of his camp, announcing a victory and conveying the congratulations of the Remi. When the news reached the Treviri, Indushomerus, who had determined to attack Labienus's camp on the following day, made off in the night and withdrew his whole force into their country. Caesar sent back Fabius and his legion to camp, intending to winter himself with three legions in three separate camps near Samarobrava, and, as such serious disturbances had broken out in Gaul, he determined to remain with the army the whole winter. When the news of Sabinus's calamitous death spread abroad, almost all the tribes of Gaul began to form warlike projects, sending messages and embassies in all directions, trying to ascertain each other's plans and see who would take the initiative, and holding meetings by night in lonely places. Caesar indeed had hardly any respite all through the winter from the harassing expectation of hearing news about the schemes and outbreaks on the part of the Gauls. Among the reports which reached him was one from Lucius Rossius, whom he had placed in command of the 13th legion, announcing that large numbers of Gauls had assembled from the Armorican tribes, as they are called, to attack him, and had been within eight miles of his camp, but that, on receiving the announcement of Caesar's victory, they had made off like runaways. Footnote. 
the maritime tribes between the Seine and the Loire. End footnote. 54. Caesar summoned the leading men of each tribe to his presence, frightened some by letting them know that he was aware of what was going on, encouraged others, and thus managed to keep a large part of Gaul obedient. The government of the Sinones, however, an extremely powerful tribe, who have great influence among the Gauls, attempted to put to death Caverinus, whom Caesar had set over them as king, and whose brother, Muratascus, had held sovereignty when Caesar came to Gaul, and his ancestors before him. Caverinus, anticipating their design, had fled. They pursued him as far as the frontier, dethroned and banished him, and then sent envoys to Caesar to explain. He ordered the whole council to appear before him, but they refused to obey. The mere fact that leaders had been found to strike the first blow had so much weight with the ignorant natives, and wrought such a complete change in temper of all, that, except the Edai and the Remi, whom Caesar always treated with special distinction, the former in consideration of their long-standing and steady loyalty to the Roman people, the latter for their recent services in the war, there was hardly a single tribe that we did not suspect. And indeed I am inclined to think that their conduct was quite natural, for this reason among many others. The Gauls were once the most warlike of all peoples, and it was most bitterly mortifying to them to have so completely lost that reputation as to be forced to submit to the domination of the Roman people. 55. All through the winter, without intermission, the Treveri and Indushomerus continued sending envoys across the Rhine, making overtures to tribes, promising them money, and assuring them that the greater part of our army had been destroyed and that the remnant was insignificant. Not a single German tribe, however, could be induced to cross the Rhine. They said that they had tried twice, in the war with Ariovistus and the migration of the Tenctory, and would not tempt fortune any more. Notwithstanding this disappointment, Indushomerus proceeded to raise his forces and drill them, to procure horses from the neighboring peoples, and by large rewards to induce exiles and condemned criminals from the whole of Gaul to join him. Indeed, he had now acquired such prestige in the country by these measures that embassies poured in from all quarters, soliciting his countenance and alliance both privately and with the authority of their respective governments. 56. Finding that advances were being spontaneously made to him, that on one side there were the Senones and Carnutes, stimulated by consciousness of guilt, on the other the Nervii and the Duatusi, preparing to attack the Romans, and that once he made a forward movement outside his frontier, he would have no lack of volunteers, he gave notice of a muster in arms. This, by Gallic usage, is tantamount to a declaration of war. By intertribal law all adult males are obliged to attend the muster under arms, and the last comer is tortured to death in sight of the host. At this gathering Indushomerus passed judgment upon Singeterex, the leader of the rival party his own son-in-law, who, as we have already observed, had thrown in his lot with Caesar and had not failed him, declaring him a public enemy, and confiscated his property. After this step, he announced before the assembled house that he had been invited by the Senones, the Carnutes, and several other tribes to join them, and intended to march through the territory of the Remi, ravaging their lands, but first of all to attack the camp of Labienus. He then gave the necessary orders. 57. 
Labienus, who was ensconced in a strongly fortified camp of great natural strength, felt no anxiety for himself or his legion. His only care was not to lose any chance of striking a decisive blow. Accordingly, having ascertained from Singeterix and his relations the drift of Indushomerus's speech at the gathering, he sent messengers to the neighboring tribes and summoned cavalry from all sides, naming a date for their arrival. Meanwhile, Indushomerus rode up and down almost every day close under the rampart of the camp, sometimes to examine the position, sometimes to converse with or intimidate the soldiers, while all his troopers generally threw missiles inside the rampart. Labienus steadily kept his men within the entrenchment, and did everything in his power to foster the belief that he was cowed. 58. Day after day Indushomerus moved up to the camp with growing contempt. Labienus made the cavalry, which he had summoned from all the neighboring tribes, enter the entrenchment in a single night, and was so careful to keep all his troops inside under guard that it was quite impossible for their arrival to be made public or reach the knowledge of the Treviri. Meanwhile Indushomerus, according to his daily custom, came up to the camp and spent a great part of the day there his troopers throwing missiles and challenging our men in the most insulting terms to fight. The men made no reply, and towards evening, thinking it time to be off, they broke up and dispersed. Suddenly Labienus sent out all his cavalry through two gates, giving stringent orders that when the enemy were panic-stricken and routed, as he rightly foresaw would happen, all ranks were to look out for Indushomerus, and not a man strike a blow till he saw Indushomerus killed for he resolved that he should not gain time to escape by delay with the rest. He set a heavy price on his head, and sent a number of cohorts to support the cavalry. Fortune justified the general's plans. With every man on his track, Indushomerus was caught and killed in the act of fording a river, and his head brought back to camp. The cavalry on their way back pursued and killed all they could. On learning what had happened, the forces of the Eburonus and the Nervii which had assembled all went off, and thenceforward Caesar found Gaul somewhat more peaceable. End of chapter 58